Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This week, we talked to Jay Gabler, journalist and sociologist based out of Minneapolis. Along with his brother, Jay is producing a play based on an imagined conversation between Talcott Parsons and C. Wright Mills. We discuss bringing sociology to the theater and the role of our discipline within broader culture. My name is Jay Gabler. I'm a writer, journalist, um, sociology teacher. I earned my PhD from Harvard University in sociology in 2007. Since then, I've been working largely as a journalist and writer in the Twin Cities. This summer, I am producing a play in the Minnesota Fringe Festival called Ivory Tower Burning. It is an imagined meeting between two real-life sociologists. It's set in 1960, and it imagines a meeting between Talcott Parsons and C. Wright Mills, who in real life were intellectual rivals and I'm sure met many times, Uh, But I'm imagining a meeting between them taking place in Parsons' office where the two of them try to have it out and resolve their significant differences in one afternoon. Why these two sociologists? Why this debate in the discipline? Why not go with, you know, Marx and Durkheimer or something that maybe is more familiar to people who took one sociology class? I think the um, the Parsons-Mills debate is a fascinating example of a really, really, the almost like the twilight of the grand theory debates that happened in sociology, which really was sort of like a brief period of time when you had sociologists believing that the development of grand theory was something that you should and could do. And this, this was, this was one of those times, 1960 Parsons was a dominant intellectual force, not just in sociology, but in academia generally, he had a plausible claim at a program that would unify the social sciences. And that was really the last point in intellectual history where you could make such a claim. Um, So you here you have Parsons almost defining the establishment, um, you know, ensconced at Harvard in his custom-made Department of Social Relations. Uh, you know, Harvard is preparing to build a building to house his Department of Social Relations. He is, you know, at, there are legions of scholars following his program. What I first became interested in Parsons because he's he had such a dramatic intellectual rise and fall. By the time I studied at Harvard in the early 2000s and very late 1990s, Parsons was already you know, having died in the late 70s was already almost a dirty word. I mean, it was really I, I'm not exaggerating when I say he was a laughing stock. You would bring up his name and people would literally laugh. And I was just I was I was interested in how that could be the case when he had been so dominant just a few decades previous. You know, it's interesting not just in terms of sociological theory, but as sort of an example of you could you could you could look at the d- discipline of sociology from a sociological perspective and ask how can one man intellectual reputation rise and fall so dramatically why did parsons have such a dramatic crash after such a after such a huge rise uh, such an epic rise and then when i became aware of his um of his rivalry with mills i thought this, here's a really probably the most dramatic intellectual rivalry in the history of sociology in that they actually debated each other i'm sure they did debate each other in person at various um, times but they debated each other in their publications they would they would criticize each other in really 
very forthright terms for academic discourse. You know, Mills would more or less explicitly say that Parsons was just spinning elaborate theories that bore no relationship to reality, that he was using this esoteric theoretical framework that had become so elaborately developed, independent, not entirely independent, but almost independently of empirical observations or systematic empirical observations that it was it was becoming just almost like a fantasy. Um, and for his part, you know, Parsons just thought that Mills was hopelessly naive and idealistic to right. think that there could be a significantly different society, that you could significantly ameliorate social inequality without a very long-term process of evolution and development. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've sort of long, I, I've had a long-standing interest in the story of those two, their ideas and their personal um, rivalry, and I've sort of been looking for a way to tell it. And so you kind of already touched on this, but what what is else is it that's unique about theater that that makes this an interesting way to, to to look at this debate? I like the way that theater can invite an audience to relate to people as human beings, mm-hmm. as personalities. Mm-hmm. You know, if you told this in the form of a book. It would be, you know, books are great at, you know, sort of carefully examining ideas and the differences between ideas and the relationships between ideas and unpacking ideas. But you don't have the sort of immediate relationship with a character. Mm-hmm. that you do in a play or a movie. It's why people want to see movies even if they really loved a book and think the book couldn't possibly be made better. It's like if you love The Hunger Games, you're kind of afraid of the movie, but you just want to see Katniss. You want to you feel like you really know her in a way that you just can't mm-hmm. in that book. You know, and so I like the way that with theater you can really start with Parsons and Mills as individuals, as people, sort of go from there to the ideas. Right. You know, it's not the only way to tell this story, but it's a way to tell this story that hopefully will make it accessible to a lot of people who would never come anywhere near a book or an article about sociology. So for our listeners that don't know, this plays part of the Fringe Festival. That's right. So what's the Fringe Festival and why do this play as part of this festival? So the Minnesota Fringe Festival is, I believe, America's largest non-juried fringe festival. There are a lot of fringe festivals around the world. And fringe festivals generally are opportunities for new and emerging or adventurous theater artists to connect with audiences by coming together in sort of festival form where they present short entertainments. I'm not even just going to say plays because it can be include burlesque. It can include stand-up comedy. It can include anything that you can do on a stage can happen in a fringe festival and does happen in a fringe festival. Uh, the Minnesota Fringe Festival being non-juried is more diverse and open than most. Entry into the Fringe Festival is by random selection. Uh, I didn't know that. That is true. Yep. you. They literally have a cage with ping pong balls and they pull <laughs> ping pong balls out of the cage and if they pull your number you're in so you're gonna have a really diverse audience i mean what is in the back of your mind when you're writing a script like this when you're dealing with theory and 
maybe some insider baseball kind of terms. How are you translating that into something that's 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 talkable and understandable? And... In terms of making it accessible to an audience of people who, by and large, will not be knowledgeable about sociology, mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm helped by the fact that Parsons and Mills had such dramatically different theories Mm. that a conversation between them where they try to resolve their differences is really going to get pretty fundamental in terms of what society is what the structure of society is there's you know they're not it's this is not like two functionalists who are going to discuss the fine differences between their specific ideas about how law enforcement fits into the larger structure of society this is going to be a pretty basic debate so there's that. And I'm just bearing in mind that this audience will have a lot of laymen, so to speak, and laywomen. Um, and I'm just, I'm trying to keep things at a level where as long as you pay attention, you can keep up. And your brother is involved in this as well. Is he helping with the production and writing, or is he he's acting with you? What's his role in this whole thing? Really, I conceived the whole project not remotely imagining that he would be involved. Really. Parsons and Mills, at the time the play is set, in 1960, were about... It, Mills was in his early-ish 40s, and Parsons mm-hmm. was in his mid to late-ish 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 36. My brother is... 20, 28 now. <laughs> so we're both, you know, too young for our yeah. characters. Uh, my initial idea was that I would play Mills and that I would cast an older actor to play Parsons. Yeah. But then once I had been, once I'd won my fringe slot and was talking about the play, my brother expressed interest and I thought, well, if we can actually make this work. Yeah. It might be fun and would add a dimension. It'll be a different show, certainly, than it would have been if it was me and an older actor. Mm -hmm. We're certainly going to be... The dynamic between us is going to be a lot different than it would be if it was me and someone who doesn't look a lot like me and isn't fairly close to my age. But I think, you know, we do have the advantage, given that these are people who don't necessarily know a lot about sociology. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily, you know, I, I could be surprised and some of the world's Parsons obsessives could fly in for this. And there are Parsons obsessives. You look at the Wikipedia page, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, shouting at each other, you know. But I'm unless a Parsons obsessive shows up and points out that I look absolutely nothing like Talcott Parsons, nor am I bald, nor do I have a little Hitler mustache, you know, I think most people are just going to go with it. And that's the beauty of the fringe. So as you mentioned, you are also a theater critic. What do your actor slash other critic journalist friends say when you tell them you're doing a play about sociologists? People seem to think it's nifty. (laughs) That's an interesting word choice. I mean, what I do now is so different from what I did in graduate school Mm -hmm. that people are sort of alternately fascinated and more amused Mm -hmm when they learn that I have this background as a sociologist. Mm-hmm. They don't really think of me as a sociologist or someone who knows a lot about sociology just because I, I don't 
deal with it a lot, um, at least not explicitly. I you know, certainly what I my studies in sociology inform everything I do, but I'm not dropping sociologists' names on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think I, 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 I think they almost like think it's like cute somehow. It also there's also the fact that I wrote sociology for dummies, which everybody thinks is really cute. <laughs> So I think, they, oh, this is kind of like sociology for dummies. It's a cute little like popularization of sociology thing. Aren't you just something to go and get your PhD and, you know, write a for dummies book and make this little play? And that's actually probably what my sociology colleagues think about it as well. <laughs> oh, aren't you cute? You left academia and you wrote sociology for dummies and now you're putting out a little play. I, I, I did hope that some sociologists would appreciate, I don't know, would, would appreciate what a relatively novel thing it is to try to write a play about two sociologists. And I've got a little of that on Tumblr. I, I posted a, my, the photo of me with my brother to my Tumblr and tagged it with sociology. So it was picked up by a couple of sociology fan blogs, which I was, of course, delighted to find out exist. Yeah. And they were they were pretty much like, holy shit! <laughs> Someone is writing a play about Talcott freaking Parsons? <laughs> We are all going to Minnesota for this, so I was I was I was hoping I'd get a little at least a little bit of that, and I even have I don't know it, there's certainly in the back of my mind I think about things like going on a little tour of like intro to sociology classes yeah. you know because you think the average intro class would love something like this sure come in and do your little show about and actually the the the, the first first like proto ur version of this was actually a lecture that I created for. I taught Sociology 10, the intro course at Harvard, Mm -hmm. and for the lecture on Parsons, I actually got a little Parsons head and a little Mills head, and I gave them little, like, speech bubbles on a PowerPoint and actually had them have this, like, little argument on the PowerPoint. (laughs) So you could say that was kind of the first version of Ivory Tower Burning was this little PowerPoint. And so it is kind of like a sociology lecture in play form, although Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that to a non-sociology audience. Right. (laughs) Before that, you know, what you do, the work that you did in graduate school um, informs what you do now. I mean, what, what do you think has stuck sort of the most? What do you draw upon the most in your work now, or even just sort of like your daily life or your your creative side that um, you kind of cultivated in graduate school? I think what attracts me to journalism is a lot of what attracted me to sociology. There are different disciplines and they involve different kinds of work and different ways of thinking and writing and communicating, but both journalists and sociologists are interested in looking at the larger story. You know, the example I've used is, for example, if you go to Rock the Garden, you know, this, this big concert, the average person goes to Rock the Garden and thinks, wow, that was a fun concert you know and both the journalists and the sociologists are thinking what's the meaning of this right like how does how do i make sense of this the journalists probably think more in terms of how does this compare to do other shows doom tree has played how does this crowd differ for these hometown bands versus last year's mgmt show you know whereas a sociologist is more thinking how could i quantify the you know fashion trends here or look at the patterns and the ways people group themselves on the hillside you know but both sociologists and journalists are thinking about the larger picture and I think what the the part of sociology that I bring most to bear in my work as a journalist and as a creative writer is a sense of 
perspective, what C. Wright Mills would call the sociological imagination, a sense that things are not always as they appear. And if you're not looking at the big picture, you might not really understand what it is you're talking about. And that's also partially the theoretical perspective that I came up in in sociology and, and, and continued to work in. My first advisor was David John Frank, who studied with John Meyer at Stanford. And so he's an institutionalist. Then my second advisor, Jason Kaufman, was not, I don't think would call himself an institutionalist, but was sympathetic, certainly, to the way of looking at the world that I had learned from David, which is always to look bigger, 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 you know, um, and to look for, for example, I wrote my dissertation on all of children's media and entertainment from pretty much the dawn of history until the early 2000s. The thought being that everybody else is like boring down and writing about Dick and Jane books from 1956, 1957. Mm-hmm. And that leaves like a, a market space, if you will, an intellectual market for someone who looks back, who steps back and looks at the whole forest because everybody else has become experts in individual trees. Mm-hmm. Right? So that is in part the specific branch of sociology that I that I'm sympathetic to and that I studied and worked in. Um, but just sort of in general, I think journalists often like to write what people want to believe, which is now we're getting to the debate between Parsons and Mills. Parsons explicitly in the play accuses Mills of telling people what they want to hear. This play and the idea that there's going to be people there that do not know who these two people are, Mm -hmm. or maybe they thought they did and they're going to learn something new. Some might call that, you know, a form of public sociology bringing sociology into sort of everyday conversation on different different pieces of culture. Um, do you see this play as, as, as doing that? I have sort of steered clear of the label public sociology mm-hmm. just because coming from, I came from such an intensely research-focused academic background that I felt like when you're at the ASA meetings and there would be the public sociology panels or the public sociology people, you know, they were just sort of seen as, I don't know, they weren't taken very seriously by the research-focused people. So if if only for that, like, residual reason, I've been hesitant to say, oh, look, this is public sociology. This is a project. This is something I'm doing. Mm -hmm. This is something all sociologists should do. Beat the drum. Um, But certainly, that said, substantively, it is public sociology. And my part of my motivation certainly is, and has always been in sociology, and as a sociologist, as a sociology teacher, and actually, and a huge part of my motivation and what went into my thinking when I wrote Sociology for Dummies was to help show the public why sociology is relevant and interesting and important. Not from, I, I in sure, sure, in part from a sort of disciplinary loyalty perspective. I do have a degree in sociology, and so... I guess I have an interest in people thinking that sociology is cool, but really just from a sort of, you know, from interest in like humans understanding themselves and ourselves and 
making smart choices in the world. I think, you know, for the reasons we've just discussed, if you don't, if you're not able to think about things from a sociological perspective, you're not going to make the best decisions and you're not going to understand your society and yourself. You're going to see, for example, the debate over healthcare as just Obama versus Romney rather than a deeper debate that links to a lot of other ideas. And I just feel like the more we understand ourselves and our society, the better off we'll be. Now I'm, I'm almost trying to sound like, well, actually, and this is one reason it was a good story to tell. Both Parsons and Mills are in their way interested in helping to spread knowledge. They have different views on what that knowledge should be, but, you know, they both wanted people to, actually, this is a, you'll, see when you watch the play this is part of the appeal that mills makes to parsons he says you know we both have an interest in helping people understand and be interested in sociology and i i I have that interest too and i hope that people will come out of this play whether or not they go and try to learn more about sociology as such through whatever means i hope that they will leave with a better cultivated sociological imagination in Mill's sense. A expanded perspective on how debates over inequality, for example, in society today are tied to very fundamental ideas about human nature and what kind of society people are capable of, which was, which was the debate that Mills and Parsons were having, and which is the debate that people are having today um, over the Occupy movement, to some extent over um, you know, international relations and globalization. You know, a lot of these debates really could very actively be participated in by Mills and Parsons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think looking at the debate between Mills and Parsons can help you start to think about how one might empirically determine what the best thing is to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, to cite the example of the Occupy movement, I think here you have the Occupy movement being Mills and Obama being Parsons, you know, the, the, the protesters chanting, this is wrong. It is wrong that people are getting evicted, you know, when they just lost their jobs and it's not their fault. It's wrong that the bank executives are making so much more money than someone working hard and earning only minimum wage. This is just fundamentally wrong and we need to change this. And Obama, in response, and, and you know, people like Obama are saying... I'm sympathetic. I agree that this is not a good thing, but the solution is not to just let these banks fail. Mm-hmm. You know, that 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 we that that we we shouldn't just burn it all down and start from scratch because that's probably not going to work. And one advantage of having this play set in 1960, it's not a coincidence this is all happening around the same time. Um, but you can put setting this play in 1960 takes you back to a time when one one actual reason that interest in sociology was so very high at this at that time, almost historically high. One one fact I make 
kind of a big deal of in the play is that in 1954, David Riesman appeared on the cover of Time magazine, which is the only time a sociologist has ever <laughs> appeared on the cover of a news weekly. You know, and that, the, the reason that people were so interested in sociology was because they thought that sociology might help them understand the really fundamental difference in social organization between the United States and its then really scary rival for international dominance, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. You know, this we were really, people were really, with very good reason, concerned about the Cold War, uh, which, which was at, at then very real risk of becoming a hot war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And certainly one thing that people thought about was, do the Soviets have it right? You know, the Soviets have a radically different social system than we do. And you know what? They're doing okay. You know, they're kind of scaring the pants off us right now. (laughs) So are they on to something that we're not on to? You know, and sociology offered a way to understand that. Mm -hmm. So sociology really is about issues that affect us. And understanding it can help us understand how to move forward in, you know, hopefully the smartest, safest possible way. Mm-hmm. Well, those are the questions that I have planned. Is there anything else about the play or just this, this project in general that I didn't ask about that is important? You, this is a play in a place at a time. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I understand that the vast majority of the world's sociologists can't come to see this play. So I'm not really hoping I don't have any hope that this play would be something of great interest to sociologists generally but I was really disappointed in the reaction of the academic sociological community to sociology for dummies because at that point that was published in 2010 I was three years out from my PhD I was relatively fresh out of research academia and a lot of that went into the book and I'm really I'm proud of the book I think it is ironically not for dummies compared to most intro sociology texts, which sort of take the perspective (laughs) that, okay, here's what you need to do in intro to sociology is memorize these buzzwords used by Marx and these buzzwords used by Durkheim and be able to say what the Protestant ethic is. And if you can just like barf that out onto a test paper, you're done. There's sociology for you. And I really, in writing that book, tried to take the perspective that my job was not to teach people who Marx was and who Durkheim was and who Weber was. And that's in the book. But more fundamentally, I really wanted to help people understand how sociology was relevant Mm -hmm. to their lives. And it's a very deliberate attempt at bridging the gap between research sociology and the average Joe who might buy a Four Dummies book. And I am not saying it's the best possible book that could have been written by, even the best book that could have been written by me. It's a book that I, you know, I, I'm pretty pleased with the way it turned out. But it's it's an attempt. And just by virtue of the fact that it's in that brand, it's a Four Dummies book, it's it must be one of the best-selling sociology books in the United States. Just, it, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, except for maybe certain widely assigned textbooks. I mean, how many sociology books can you expect to find in every Barnes & Noble? Right, not you know, it's a limited subset, especially ones that try to treat the whole of sociology and not just you know particular books about you know you know particular um, situations or whatever, but books that really try to introduce the entire discipline of sociology. So I, 
I guess I had a hope that if I went to academic sociologists and said, you know, I've just written this book that's probably just, you know, nothing to do with me, but just because it has that yellow cover is going to be pretty widely read. And I'm interested in talking with you about the choices I made in writing it and talking with you about how to bridge that gap between academic sociology and the ordinary person and sort of bring sociology down to earth in a way that might, you know, introduce sociology to a larger audience or might, if nothing else, help people who have to study sociology anyway, Mm -hmm. enjoy their studies more or take more out of them or whatever. But... It, I certainly it, it was certainly completely ignored by academic sociology in the sense that nobody went out of their way to you know I, I, as far as I know it was never reviewed in any you know academic journal um, it was I, contemporary sociology I, as far as I know didn't touch it even contexts didn't touch it you know nobody everybody just considered it irrelevant you know I, I went I won't name names but you know there I went to you know, a couple of sociology departments and said, you know, here's, um, I've, I've done this book. Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to like, you, sh- you know, you want to have, should I come to like, uh, one of those like department lunch things that you do <laughs> and, you know, do you just want to talk about this, you know, and was just got a big shoulder shrug, mm-hmm. like, no, not really. And then, you know, even not just from sociologists, but I contacted local independent bookstores and said, you know, would you like me to come in and do a reading or talk about this or whatever? And they're like, no, no, we don't, we don't do readings for those kinds of books. So I guess I, I was, I, I'm not surprised. And I can't say I, the way I thought about Four Dummies books was very different, but and I suppose this is very relevant to your question about public sociology and right. the role of public sociology. I'm not sure what the best way to do public sociology is. And I'm not sure how to overcome the stigma that I described within the sociological community, given the, the current structure of academia. And I'm sure this is not unique to sociology, but is true of other academic disciplines as well in terms of this like skepticism of people who choose to spend a lot of their time teaching teaching undergraduates let alone writing sociology for dummies you know i i don't know what the solution to that is but i think it is that for the discipline of sociology to engage a broader public is critical not just to sociology as an sort of academic discipline um but how to say this it's it's that if sociology and this is this is a challenge that every academic discipline faces, but especially sociology, because you know, one of the research projects that I worked on became a book called "Reconstructing the University" that I co-wrote with David Frank, and that was a book about is is a book about the rise and fall of different academic disciplines mm-hmm. over the course of the 20th century worldwide. And so, for that project, we did a lot of thinking about what it is that causes academic disciplines to rise and fall and you know we argue that there are very large very deep structural forces that are fundamentally driving these changes but it's certainly but you know there there are a lot of factors at play in terms of how disciplines fare 
in the university. And I think that this is, just as 1960 was a crucial time for sociology and that it was very ascendant and increasingly popular, it was a period that saw a huge growth in departments of social science generally, especially sociology and um, some other departments. Um, you know, what that was one thing that you, you'll see in the play, Parsons repeatedly says, I am a scientist. And it's he's not just contrasting himself to Mills, he's contra- he's... He, he wants to associate himself with natural scientists, mm-hmm. and he wants sociology to have that same respect. Mm-hmm. Um, this time in history, 2012, I think sociology is potentially, I don't want to be overdramatic about this, but I think it's potentially teetering on the edge of a very steep precipice in that it's... I think it's at risk of becoming a victim of its own success, kind of like philosophy has been. You know, there was a time when everything, that's why we're, that's why you're getting a PhD and why I have a PhD as opposed to a, you know, another kind of D because everything came from philosophy back in the day, you know, medicine, natural science, all those things. It was all philosophy. But, you know, as the philosophical perspective gave birth to these disciplines, they spun off. And now the people who actually studied philosophy and call themselves philosophers it's a very tiny set of people studying very esoteric issues you know and and so departments of philosophy now are relatively tiny tiny i think your philosophy is much tinier no it, it just is empirically tinier than sociology you know and i think that sociology right now is in danger of being defined out of existence almost you know, that you can study a lot of things that sociologists study. Every sociologist, you have to study something substantive. And there are subdis- there are related disciplines now for all those things. You know, there's a Department of African-American Studies. There's a Department of Women's Studies. There's, uh, you know, Department of Political Science. And then a lot of humanities are becoming increasingly um, social science in their orientation. So a lot of, like, historians now are increasingly doing what you would formerly have regarded as historical sociology. Right. You know, and so a lot of what happened formerly under the auspices of sociology is happening under the auspices of other departments. And a huge rival for sociology's seats in the lecture halls and dollars and faculty appointments is economics. Mm-hmm. And what economics is kicking ass in right now compared to sociology is peaking popular interest. It's taking advantage of the fact that people right. think economics is real in a way that sociology is not. Ask anyone who's you know considering majoring in sociology versus economics and their parents will say, do economics, it's useful. Despite the fact that fundamentally there's very little difference. You know, you could write basically the same dissertation, you know, and whether it's in economics or sociology is at some point almost a, man, a matter of semantics. But, you know, so economics is ascendant and it's actually poaching, you know, elements of sociology. If you look at Freakonomics, mm-hmm. a lot of those studies are actually sociological studies, you know, executed right. by sociologists. And now they're being claimed as economic studies, as economics sort of, you know. And so if sociology is to persist and survive, it's going to need to win some hearts and minds beyond academia. And a project like this play could be the kind of project that could help do that. And if it does that to any extent, I will be glad. That's all for this episode of Office Hours. See you soon.